Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang, and with schools across the country having started classes like USC or are about to begin their fall slate, we are seeing varied responses in how they are handling the specter of the continuing COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. This has been an especially tricky situation when it comes to student-athletes and how they are integrated among the general student population. I'm pleased to be joined by someone uniquely qualified to discuss all of this and more. Jeff Fellenzer, an associate professor of professional practice at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, a former editor and writer for the LA Times, and a Heisman Trophy Award voter. We're going to get into all that and more. Jeff, welcome to the Everything USC podcast. Nara, great to be with you and thank you for inviting me. Appreciate having you on. I know we always enjoy talking sports, so this will be fun. Absolutely. And if you enjoy listening to the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, and tune in all of your favorite podcast directories or go to the website Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com on social media at Believe Podcasts. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Jeff, why don't you let everyone know where they can catch up with you on social media and anything else you'd like to promote? Sure, yeah. Well, I'd love to have people tune into my podcast. It's called The Front Row. There's a few other podcasts that have some semblance of that name, but if you just put my name and The Front Row, it will come up. There's a red curtain and a couple of chairs a little stage there that you'll see, a little graphic. Love to have your listeners tune in when they get a chance. We're going to be ramping it up and adding more content during the course of the fall. We just added a few weeks ago, actually a class that I had with Dick Enberg a few years ago. I was actually the fall of 2017, and we turned the class recording into a podcast. We couldn't do a separate one because suddenly, tragically, Dick passed away at a way too young 82 about five weeks after his appearance in my class, died of a heart attack. And so I think it was maybe the last time that he spoke publicly. He just started his own podcast, Sounds of Silence. And we had a great experience. And I think there's going to be a lot of great memories that people will feel when they listen in and hear that golden voice again. So it's the front row. And Twitter is Jay Felenzer, Instagram. I'm anxious to share last night's class, which was a conversation with Doug Glanville, the former baseball outfielder, the Cubs, Phillies, and Rangers, and now ESPN commentator and New York Times opinion writer and adjunct professor at UConn. So we're up and rolling for the semester, and the classes themselves are, I think, are good content. So I'm, I'm hoping to find a way to bring more sort of a, the highlights of the class, either into my podcast or somewhere on one of the social platforms. That'll be great. I got to be a guest and listen in on your class over Zoom. We're going to talk more about those classes over the internet in a little bit, but it was fun to listen to Doug Glanville, so it'll be great if you can get it out there for sure. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. 
The football season is in full swing, and while you might not be at the games this year, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Should you bet on Tom Brady and the Bucks as a home underdog versus Aaron Rodgers and the Packers? Does Nick Saban testing positive for COVID affect Alabama's chances against Georgia if Steve Sarkeesian has to be the acting head coach on game day? Those are a couple of the big questions bettors are asking themselves this week. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. This show should have been a preview of USC's season-opening football game against Alabama in Arlington, Texas. Instead, I'm talking to you a couple of days (laughs) before that game was supposed to take place with no sports scheduled for the rest of 2020 for the Trojans after the Pac-12 postponed all fall sports through the end of the year. This followed the Big Ten's decision to postpone fall sports as well, while the other three Power Five conferences, the ACC, Big 12, and SEC, have all decided to press on and play games. Jeff, what do you think about the decisions by the Pac-12 and Big Ten not to play sports during the fall season? Well, first, Nara, let me just say, to not have this USC-Alabama game, you know, really hurts this time, this year, more than maybe in any other year, because this would have been the 50th anniversary, 5-0, since that famous 1970 game, which is a part of my class every year, I think it's very important that students know about the year that John McKay took a fully integrated USC team down to Birmingham. They played the game not on campus in Tuscaloosa, but in Birmingham against Alabama. It was an all-white Alabama team. They did have a couple of black freshman players, but freshmen weren't eligible until 1972. So This game really had a significant impact on helping to get the South integrated in college football, really in sports to have the mindset necessary to head into the 21st century. I mean, the future was now that night in USC had a rousing 42 to 21 victory. And I always have Sam Cunningham and John Papadakis as guests in my class. And I've had Bill Holland as well as a fullback on that team. And Bruce Rawlinson, the modern-day football coach, was on that USC team. And it's been an absolute joy to have those men in my class telling stories and reflecting on the significance of that night, that Saturday night, and that entire weekend in Alabama and the impact it had on college football. And to think this was going to be the 50th anniversary of that historic game, it just saddens me that we're in the state we are but we're in it. And I'm also one of those people that, you know, I would say forget half full or half empty. I always think of my cup as running over completely full. Like that's how positive that I try to be always. And, you know, I think first and foremost, Nara, that it's the health of the players and the coaches that are the most important factors to consider. So I would always err on the side of caution. And people say, well, the chances of younger people getting it to where it could potentially be fatal the odds are pretty small. But the one thing, you know, when you hear about the heart inflammation issues that are surfacing, and the other thing, and I have a neighbor that's a nurse at UCLA Medical Center in Santa Monica, and she told me one day, she just goes, 
you don't want to get this. He said, we're already seeing people that had COVID early on, sort of the first wave, like February, are coming back because there are repercussions from it, even though they were cured or at least you know, their symptoms stop and they went through the healing process, but now they're coming back. And I just think, what would happen if a college football player played through it and kind of got caught up in the university and the climate of favoring football and play through and, you know, the impact it has on the community and fans and all those wonderful things we love about the sport. And then what happens in five or six years? Forget the NFL, just there's a recurrence and something terrible happens to a player. Like, that's not just a wild thought that possibly, possibly could happen, very infinitesimal chances. No, those are things we just don't know enough about. Is it worth the risk? And by the way, who pays if this kind of thing ends up in court? You know, are universities responsible? So I think about that when I read that the Pac-12 really leaned on its medical committee and working in concert with other conferences, including the Big Ten. We've always kind of had that connection with the Big Ten. And so if they've made the decision, they don't feel it's safe, you know, it's pretty hard for me to look past the ultimate reason that you'd want to really play. And nobody's going to say it, but, you know, it's the money that's generated. And granted, it does pay for really most of the other sports, if not all the other sports, maybe with the exception of men's basketball at some schools. And I get that. But that's a pretty big price to pay if you're talking about potentially losing lives down the road. And I'm just not sure we're at a point where you can just say full speed ahead, especially when you think about the cases in the student body at places like Alabama and South Carolina and Georgia. There's a lot of cases of students contracting the virus, and now the decision is being made to play through it. So it's hard for me to fault the pack. And if I think about a son of mine or a friend's son that is asked to play through it, how I might be feeling about it. We're looking at it as fans and we feel like something's been taken from us. But I think ultimately you have to try to put yourself in the shoes of the players that are taking the risk. It's a lot different than playing in a bubble as a professional. This is your livelihood. You know, these are college student athletes. So it's a different deal. And they have their lives to live after college. And almost all of them will not be playing professional football. So there's a lot to consider there. Yeah, I think if it wasn't for the amount of money involved in big-time college football, we wouldn't be having a discussion. There would be no football across the country. But, of course, money plays a role in all of this. And like you mentioned, we just don't know, because it's a new illness, a new disease, what the long-term effects are going to be. Already there are supposedly cases. We saw the doctor at Penn State come out and say that Big Ten athletes that have had covid developed a form of myocarditis and right. the long-term effects of that could be devastating depending right. on the person. So there's a lot that we just don't know. And the Pac-12 and Big Ten have decided to err on the side of caution. The Pac-12, I think, did a much better job than the Big Ten of explaining the reasoning behind the postponement. And so they're not catching as much grief as right. Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten, has been getting. But it's still a decision that should not be taken lightly because... Like you said, there is so much money involved. So when we look at USC, what do you think is going to be the financial impact if there is no football at all, if they don't come back and play in the spring? Well, it'll be significant. There's no question about it. It's hard to know what kind of reserves are there to help get through a season like this if there is no football. I'm trying to be, again, be optimistic that there could be something happening, whether it was the late fall, early winter, 
January, we know the high school football season is going to start January 8th in Southern California, assuming there isn't any major setback before then. So, you know, the hope was that maybe spring football could work. It obviously presents a lot of problems related to the elite players that may not want to participate due to their standing in the NFL draft and their professional futures. But I don't kind of subscribe to a theory that, boy, if you took out some of the elite talent that might opt out, that you couldn't still have a very good season. I mean, yeah, you lose a few key marquee players, but my gosh, with the level of talent you have at schools at the Power Five level, I'm sure it would be a season that we would all welcome. And you'd probably see younger players playing sooner. And that's kind of one of the fun things about college sports today is how quickly that freshmen make an impact. But no, going back to your question about the bottom line, it's hard to know if basketball is played and kind of on schedule. I mean, that certainly would help cushion the blow of not having football to some extent in a place like USC where basketball hasn't been the money-making operation that it is at other places like Arizona. The impact wouldn't be as great, but you know, the loss of football is monumental. And again, if it's something that you could get through one year and you had reserves to help you get through that, and you could avoid taking a big hit with sponsors that I think you hope would be able to work with you through a year like this, then you just have to get through it. You know, it's kind of like what we're all doing to try to to make things work. It's a strain on everybody. And, you know, my hope is that whether it would be the arrival of a vaccine or just the ability to, you know, handle this, realize it's going to be with us. It's not something we're just going to get rid of, but how do we work with this disease in a sense, in terms of just steps we take to minimize its effects, then I think if we can have some semblance of football, that would go a long way to you know mitigating these circumstances. Otherwise, we have to get through it the best we can. And that's kind of what we're kind of going through on the academic side, not necessarily what any of us wanted, but what we're trying to do is just make the best of it. Yeah. And then, of course, if they do end up playing football in 2021, the question becomes, How do you play two football seasons in one calendar year? And that's a whole other set of issues there. But I think right now we're just in a wait and see because there is no vaccine. We still just have to wait and see what the numbers are when we get toward the end of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I think by NCAA standards, they need to have basketball because with football, they don't run the postseason. And so that's a whole separate issue from the NCAA. But the NCAA, which runs all of the championships for the other sports, they need to have basketball, men's basketball specifically, to make the money that they lost from this past spring and winter sports losing all the championships there. So there's a lot still to be worked out with all of that. So that's kind of, again, a waiting game, like you said, to see what happens there. But in terms of the players who have lost out on this fall sports season, it's not just football, obviously. There's men's water polo, women's volleyball, soccer, and those players are going to be allowed to retain their eligibility for an extra year by the NCAA, just like they did with the spring sports when that was canceled earlier this year. But obviously that has another set of unintended consequences because yes, they can keep that extra eligibility. And for one year, the scholarship limits are not going to be enforced by the NCAA. But then after that one year, when they go back to doing that, how are you supposed to balance out your teams and all of that stuff? I mean, it's still stuff that has to get worked out and otherwise it's going to make it a crunch on schools and hurt people long term. So I think 
you still got to look at how that's going to all work out. But for now, as you brought up, if they do play football in the spring, you are probably going to see these top NFL draft prospects opt out of a season. We've already seen Jay Tufele, the defensive lineman for USC, announce that he's going to turn around and start preparing for the NFL draft. And in a lot of ways, that makes sense because at earliest, he would be playing in the beginning of 2021. The surprising thing is what we've seen at LSU, like a star receiver, the Bolitnikoff award winner, Jamar Chase, who could be playing in the fall saying, nope, I'm just going to opt out and worry about the NFL. What do you think about those decisions, whether it's a guy who could be playing in the fall versus a guy who wouldn't be playing until 2021? Yeah, I think it's just, it's the world we live in. It's the way it is. There's a lot on the line. I don't begrudge players that feel that way, that have had a lot of time to think about these consequences and, you know, think about the impact of a pro contract, how it affects not just the individual, but families and potentially generations to come. So, you know, it's always hard for me to be in someone else's shoes and say, you know, you really should play. And, and really what we're saying is we want to watch you play. And that's not really the kind of advice that players you know, need to be hearing. I mean, it's what's best for them. And so, you know, understand that and respect Jay Tufeli's decision. I get respect the decision of, you know, of all players that are kind of in that boat. I think the ones that leave themselves open to second guessing are ones that we see this in basketball, more often players that are considered fringe prospects that, you know, would be better suited. I think anybody would agree to return. Right. But then again, there's a lot of things, factors even there that we don't necessarily know. First of all, if you're not someone that loves school or really is a very good student, then that's going to be a factor. And that's never going to come out usually in the announcement of why you made a certain decision. But you have to realize that that is the case for some people. And I think with football, where there's such a high degree of physical risk, it's a lot easier to understand, you know, in almost any position that you put yourself out there. And even though you could say, well, how many truly career ending injuries happen in college? There's a risk. There's always a risk when you play tackle football. That's just the way it is. That's one of the reasons why the weakest, least interesting of the professional all-star games is the NFL's all-star game, because you can't half-ass it when you play tackle football. you got to go all out all the time. And so you can't just say, well, we're going to kind of have some fun and throw the ball around and, you know, not if you're tackling players. So I get the risk. I don't begrudge players that decide they don't want to take a risk. Again, I go back to the point of, when you bring in sort of the next line of young talent, it's really exciting to see. And as somebody that loves high school football, I go to a different high school game every Friday night. I have a group of guys, we call it our Friday Night Lights group, and we're at a different game every week of the season. I mean, that'll be as painful almost as not having college football on Saturdays, as not having high school football on Friday nights, at least until we get to January. But it's fun to see the next wave of talent. And that's one of the reasons we love going out there. And You'll just see those players sooner, and uh, you're going to have a little more inexperience on the field. But it's a level playing field in that regard. Certain schools like USC that have traditionally more pro prospects will be hurt a little bit more. But again, you'll also see the next wave come in, and I think that's going to be fun too. So with no Pac-12 sports scheduled until 2021 at the earliest, We are hearing rumblings that that might change because the NCAA is looking into starting basketball season on November 25th across the entire spectrum. Something like that, do you think, could get the Pac-12 on board because it's later enough and it's after 
the end of the semester for students at USC, where maybe you can figure, okay, most of these students are going to be on break from school. That'll be a perfect time to create a bubble-like environment. I mean, what do you think is necessary to get the Pac-12 on board with starting earlier than what they said, which was January 1st, 2021? Well, first of all, I'm going to go back to what you were saying, that you really hope that basketball would be played in its entirety. And the NCAA is going to certainly advocate for that as much as they can, given wherever we are as far as the health and safety issues. Because as you said, the NCAA tournament, March Madness, pays for everything. It pays for all of those championships being held. Sometimes we don't think about that, like when the water polo championships or the women's volleyball championships are held, wherever they are across the country. It's not the schools of the conference that pays for the teams that participate. It's the NCAA with money that came from the NCAA tournament. So it's important. And I really hope that basketball, first of all, we've seen a model work in basketball. We've seen what the NBA has done. Now they've had a bubble, but it's not quite the same as football in terms of the physical risks. So I think it's reasonable to think that basketball could be played. And I really hope, as you do, Nara, that it is played. Now, what's tricky is you've got different calendars at schools. You know, USC started the fall semester a week earlier than originally scheduled. So we were starting up on August 17th instead of the 24th. And the idea was to be finished, completely finished by Thanksgiving. So when students went home for a Thanksgiving break, they didn't come back a week later, which made perfect sense. You know, it's kind of the start of flu season. The weather's colder. You just have more physical risk. Students are staying up late studying for finals. There's a lot there. And you just take that out. Students could go home. They finish final exams. They go home. They can be with their families and not come back to campus until January. So the UCs start, UCLA doesn't start till the 1st of October. So how do you get everybody kind of working on the same page with a basketball season if you want to start it in November? And let's say USC players are at home. How is that going to work? I don't have an answer. When Mike Bone comes to my sports business media class in a couple of weeks, that certainly will be at or near the top of the list of questions we'll have on what is being discussed and what would the compromise be. But I do think that the basketball season, if it could start in the winter before the spring semester in January, as long as you could do it safely and it wouldn't adversely impact on you know student athletes that were going to get that break from their roles as students, then I think it would be perhaps a good solution to having about as regular a season as you could have. Frankly, when you look at potential takeaways from what we've gone through with this pandemic, one hope is that maybe we would have a more defined season instead of what has happened in basketball the last probably decade and further back, where we used to start at the end of the football season, usually around Thanksgiving. And it's been pushed up and closer and closer to almost the middle or the two-thirds mark of the college football season, like early November. And it really was a sport that started at the end of the college football season. And I'd like to see it go back to that, frankly, and not edge on to the college football season. I think there should be a little bit more of a separation and a new calendar would do that. So my hope is that there's a way to work this out if all involved at schools that have a calendar similar to USC's, which as I said, was going to be sending students home, student athletes home at Thanksgiving. Would they be able to essentially not have that break? How would that work? Would they be willing to do that? And would there be the feeling that it was a safe thing to do? And could it be accomplished? And would there be some sort of a bubble situation that could exist, you know, on campus or as part of the the 
campus community. We'll see. Yeah, I think what's going to happen is that each conference is going to have to determine, are you willing to play non-conference games? Because if you are, then obviously starting as early as possible helps with that in terms of scheduling. But let's just say the Pac-12 decides, you know what, we're just going to go with a Pac-12 only schedule and every team is going to play every team home and home, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you go 22 games as a season, all conference. Well, then, yeah, you don't have to start until 2021, theoretically, if you're going to try and do something like that. So I think it's going to be... Do we want to have non-conference games or not? And if so, how can we make that happen if we're not going to start until January? And, you know, Nora, I will say, even though I don't necessarily like the trend of, you know, moving up the start of the college season as far as they have done it, because I think for one thing, I think it kind of gets lost a little bit with college football sort of on its stretch drive of a season. But the really fun non-conference games, the kind of the made-for-TV big events, a lot of them are in Las Vegas and other parts of the country. And God, they had it on an aircraft carrier in San Diego. Right. They played a game at Petco Park. I mean, they kind of do some of the fun things and you lose that, but that's still not as important as having, you know, the complete conference season. So if that was the worst outcome that for a year, we lost a lot of the marquee non-conference matchups. And there's a possibility you could move some of them during the season. You know, there used to be a time when, like during UCLA-USC week, That was usually a time when you had one game, so you could play another game that week. And so you might be able to still schedule some of those games in the middle of a conference season. But I think the most important thing is, of course, the health and safety of players. But as far as the makeup of the season, that, as you said, that we have an NCAA tournament and that we can look forward to having the postseason. And I think you could say that with all of the sports, you know, as crazy as the baseball season's been you know, we're going to have playoffs and World Series. And even though this is an odd-looking NBA playoffs because there are no home games, you know, it's still, we're pretty tuned into our teams and when they're playing. And yeah, it's different, but the competition is still there. You know, the players are still playing. They're going head-to-head. And so I think that, you know, having the playoffs, having the World Series, having the postseason, and having March Madness, there certainly would be a reward and a pot of gold in a lot of ways at the end of the rainbow. And one thing we should mention, kind of breaking news, is that the Pac-12 has come into an agreement with the Quidel Corporation, a company that manufactures FDA-approved rapid tests for a lot of things, but including now the coronavirus, COVID-19. And this is going to allow all the Pac-12 schools to have rapid testing available and daily testing available. The machines are going to go out to all of the Pac-12 schools by the end of September, supposedly. And so this is a possibility to, I don't know if it'll start football earlier, but maybe get the winter sports started on time. What do you think about that, Jeff? I think that was probably the most significant development in this COVID summer for the Pac-12 conference. To have a certified testing program that would provide rapid results for testing, I think is crucial because you just can't afford to have a significant lag time and maintain effective oversight for the program with student athletes when you know you administer testing and then you're not able to find out within 24, 48 hours of game time whether or not 
someone has tested positive. And if there was any doubt, you sent somebody out to play a game. Not that it would come to this. You would hope that you'd get testing as recent and close to game time as possible. You certainly don't want to be in a situation where you could spread something to multiple players, which certainly could happen, you know, on a football field. And so this is a game changer potentially for the conference and, as you suggested, for other sports as well. And I think it's something, at least for football going forward, puts the pack in a position that they now have, I think, the necessary elements to be close, to be right there and to feel like now you can move with this foundation going forward. And I think everybody operates with just a lot more confidence, the players, coaches, administrators, and parents. So I thought that was really good news. Yeah, and a great development that the Pac-12 is the first to come into an agreement like this. You would expect that probably the other conferences will follow as well. Right. So we'll see how this develops. And again, it is good news for rapid testing and daily testing to be available. But like Commissioner Larry Scott warned, the local jurisdictions are still going to determine whether teams are going to be able to practice and participate in sports. So we'll wait and see how that all transpires. Again, you're listening to the Everything USC podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network. If you enjoy listening to the show, you can subscribe and rate us wherever you find your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. You can also go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. If you want to reach out to me, it's on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. My guest today, Associate Professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Jeff Fellenzer. Jeff, let everyone know where they can catch up with you. Yeah, absolutely. My podcast is called The Front Row. Just put my name in next to the Front Row podcast. There's a couple other ones that have a similar name and it will come up. And I think you'll enjoy one of my conversations is with Sam Darnold. It actually goes back to after his rookie season. Really, my motivation in starting this podcast, Nara, was I'm interested and I'm invigorated by the stories of the journeys in sports. How someone got to where they got to. How did they do it? What were the factors along the way that contributed to it? What's happening now? And sort of what were the keys to success to getting there? We talked about a lot of those things with Sam. Did one with Ndamukong Sue. And I think we all know his reputation, the dirtiest player in the NFL. What I didn't know was that he was an engineering major and has his degree in engineering from Nebraska. And when he's finished playing football, he's going to go back and work with his dad, who's an engineer, probably back in Portland, where he was raised, to have another chapter in his life and have one with Bill Walton as well. And that's really my motivation is try to find the humanity in sports and the journeys and what were the keys. And so you can follow me on Twitter, too, at Jay Felenzer. I'll try to have occasional reports, updates from things that my guests shared with my class. And we'll do that with Doug Glanville because we've got into so many, so many really interesting issues, I thought, uh, about athlete activism and this fight for racial equality in our country right now and how it impacted a player that has his own track record of success and as a commentator. And so I, I have a blast just in my class with my students. And we have, a, I think, a special thing going on Wednesday nights and my intro to sports media class is Tuesday nights. So I enjoy the heck out of just my chance to be with these students and, you know, and hear them and what their journeys are like and how I can help them. And it's a lot of fun for me. And it's really a rewarding thing for me too. 
I'm Sam Farber, host of USC Trojans Wrap-Up on the USC Trojans Radio Network, and you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. As Jeff has mentioned earlier, like many universities, USC decided to start fall classes earlier than normal, beginning on August 17th in order to finish by Thanksgiving and have an extended winter break. In order to cut down on student travel and not have as many people around during the start of flu and cold season, especially with the coronavirus still wreaking havoc across America, USC originally planned to have a hybrid approach with a mix of in-person learning combined with online classes, but ended up deciding to go with fully remote instruction until further notice. We've seen other schools do the same thing when COVID-19 outbreaks occurred when students returned into the campus communities like what happened at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Alabama, TCU, and USC are just a few of the other schools that have had to deal with outbreaks as the new academic year began. But the difference between SC and the other schools I've named is that those other schools are in conferences that are planning to have athletic competitions this fall. So Jeff, aren't these schools that are going to play sports just basically rolling the dice and hoping that they don't get hit with a massive outbreak during the season? 100%, Nora. I mean, you said it best. They're just rolling the dice. And that's why I say it's hard for me to really fault. It's hard for any of us to fault decisions made on the side of caution when we don't have all of the facts in front of us. We're not privy to those meetings with the medical committees. But if you're hearing the health experts, and I think that's where our direction should always be taken from of what the health experts say. Let's try not to politicize this issue. Let's really look at, you know, what are the people that are in charge of setting the tone for the direction we go with health in this country and in particular in combating this disease. What are they recommending? I mean, I don't want that on my conscience if we say, you know what, even though you're recommending this, we think we're going to go ahead and play. Well, then, Really, what is your motivation if that's what you decide? And we discussed it earlier. It, it comes back to just saying, you know what? This, the bottom line is the bottom line. We just can't afford to take that big of a hit. And so we're going to ask these players, you know, in the case of college football, which brings in such a significant amount of revenue, we're, hey, we know it's a risk, guys, but we need you out there. We need you out there. And, you know, it's, again, I, I just don't want that on my conscience that I've sent somebody out there when we just don't have enough assurances that this is the safe and right thing to do right, and healthy thing to do. So again, I'd rather take what amounts to a redshirt year or some kind of a hybrid where we play a truncated season, whether it's winter, spring, and see if that can, you know, help at least, you know, make it a patchwork year. And I think if you could get some people in the stands that you'd mitigate some of the loss of revenue that way, and perhaps your sponsors would be willing to ride it out with you. But if you don't do that and you just throw caution to the wind and roll the dice, I can't feel good while I'm watching. For me, I'm, you know, I'm watching, in some cases, players that you know, I'm going to see in class the next week. And you know, players you develop relationships with and coaches do, and you care about them and you care about their families and you, know, you meet parents. And again, this is a lot different than you know, a professional situation where you're making a living. This is what you've chosen to do for a livelihood. This is a little bit different. And this isn't a deal where players have protections of, you know, health benefits that go beyond the time that they're in school. That's the devious part of this whole thing is what are the long-term effects? 
You know, I talk about this kind of insidious disease that we're dealing with where things may show up down the road and that's where your problems could, you know, really get significant in terms of long-term health and care and who pays for it. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. And I can't fault any conference for, you know, opting kind of for that side of it and that choice. And it certainly is interesting. Somebody could counter and say, well, how about the parents of Big Ten players that were out, you know, kind of almost picketing, wanting their sons to play college football? There have been a few. But here's the thing. I don't mean to interrupt, but they also don't want to sign any waivers releasing liability if something were to happen to their kids, right? They want to play, but they don't want to sign any liability waivers. And everyone's against liability waivers. And I totally get that. But if you don't get one, then you're not going to get the other. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's you got it exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm reading a lot of articles, as I'm sure you are, on a lot of sites. And whenever a coach, usually former player, you know, will wax poetic and riff on the benefits of football and what would be missing and what a unifier it is and the sort of the pageantry and the value. Like nobody questions any of those things. <laughs> We're just saying, is it the right time to take on the risks? Nobody is saying that we don't want to have inherently the college football season take place. We're all going to miss it. Like I said, my Friday nights are, there's going to be a void this fall, not being in a high school game. But I think we want to do it sort of with a clear conscience that the players that are in the trenches fighting it out and taking the risks are not taking risks that could have, you know, significant long-term negative impacts. Right. Because the bottom line is, can we really think it's possible to expect 18 to 22-year-old students, whether they're athletes or not, to not socialize and do all of the things that put you at risk for coronavirus? And again, we've seen the scenes of those big parties, which again are Not good in the time of coronavirus. No one's wearing masks. They're all in close quarters and everything. But it could be simply doing a study session with friends. Right. And someone may have picked it up from somewhere. And then now you've got an outbreak brewing just from a study session where people were trying to do the right thing. They weren't going out and partying. But that's what happens when you have this confined campus community. So no question. All right. Because of that, that's it's just going to be a danger for this virus where we don't have a vaccine to spread. And yes, they are young. They should theoretically have a better chance of recovering and not getting as sick as maybe others. But you can also pass it on to older people like your coaches or to your parents. And that's the issue I think that people have to be worried about. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, I've said all along that, you know, the issue isn't so much In the case of football players, when you're at the McKay Center and you're being tested and your lives are really being regulated and controlled, and there's great structure to those lives when you're together, essentially that's a bubble, okay? Then you leave that bubble. And you can actually even, you know, studying there because the academic center is there as well. The Student Athlete Academic Services Department is there, right there in the McKay Center. So it makes it easy. So you can do that, I guess, with the proper distancing. But what happens then when you go back to whether it's a dorm or, you know, apartment complex, now you're outside the bubble and they weren't willing even to do that to allow NBA players, you know, people that have families and that would take it seriously. And again, part of their livelihood. Nope. They go to and from the gym and their hotel. And it's only been a few weeks into it that families are allowed to join them. So that was very, very structured and controlled. But with college kids who may be away from home for the first time, now they go back to wherever they live and you're asking them to 
not give in to the temptation to socialize. That's where I say it's, you know, that's where the rubber really meets the road. And would you really say that 18 to 22 year olds, especially the, you know, the younger ones would be able to self-regulate enough that they don't become a risk then when they come back and interact with their teammates the next day or even later that night. And what happens if you test before you head out for a road trip and all of your quarterbacks all of a sudden test positive? What happens? Do you not play? What's the number that you've lost going into a game that you'd say, we're not going to play? So like every week, you'd be holding your breath. It just seems like, you know, the signs to me point to not taking those chances. Now we're going to see. We're going to see what happens with the SEC and ACC and Big 12. And if it works out, it may look good now. But again, I wonder about what the impact is long term. Yeah. And that's why it's funny for me to hear the comments from a coach like Mac Brown at UNC after everything that happened in Chapel Hill and the school decided to send students home. And Coach Brown actually says, you know, this is going to be better. It's going to create more of a bubble. We're going to have less people around and it's going to actually make it easier for us to play football. And I just think that that's indicative of, I think, why those conferences are choosing to play is because they want to have football and they're going to see anything that can help them have football make it a benefit, even if it is sending students away and having to have them learn over the internet. This is actually going to be good for football. And I mean, I don't think he's technically wrong necessarily, but doesn't, again, this make that argument that student athletes are just regular students? Just throw that completely out the window, right? Right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the SEC says that it just means more down there. But, geez, Nara, at what price? You know, at what price are we willing to take those risks for kids that are, you know, they're not part of a unified labor force, a union with the protections and, you know, regulations that protect them down the road? I just feel like we're rushing back to action, almost just putting our heads in the sand to try to, you know, like those comments you quoted, Mac Brown, it just sounds like I'm scrambling to justify why we're doing this. And to these campuses where college football, where they claim it does mean more, a lot in the South and on the East Coast, we're not saying this is the end of college football, but it's one year that's a year unlike any other and trying to be as creative as possible and figuring out how to get through it. And boy, it seems like it's more of a rush just to get out there in some way, shape, or form. And when you look at the number of cases of regular students at a few of those schools in the SEC and ACC, at Alabama and Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina and others, boy, the numbers just don't add up to me, Nar. I don't think they add up as well. And we're going to see how they can try and get through a season. And we know there are going to be outbreaks. We're going to have to see how they deal with them, how they handle it. and whether there are enough of them that will cause them to postpone a season or cut a season away, or if they're just going to try and power through it. And that'll be interesting to see what those conferences do. Definitely. But now my guest today is an associate professor at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Jeff Fellenzer. So I want to talk to him about how has it been for you to be teaching classes online rather than in person? What are these challenges that you have to deal with? Well, I would say, Nara, all things considered, and again, this is the part of me that always feels like, you know, hey, you do the best you can with what you have. And I've been very impressed with the effort that students have made. We started this in March, the spring semester, 
and we didn't have any time to prepare. It happened around the time of spring break, which I guess we were kind of lucky with that because at least it gave us during that week off to gear up. But it's been a pretty seamless transition for me now. I would say that when you teach sports-related classes, it's going to be different than teaching a class that's maybe a little more technical, a science class or an accounting class, something like that, because it's still sports and there are issues in sports that people are familiar with. And there's a lot of sports fans that are in the class and they have strong opinions and they like to weigh in and I like to hear their opinions. And we have discussions like last night, we went an hour later than what I thought we were going to. Our guest was on the East Coast, Doug Glanville, and it was 12.30 a.m. and we were still going. That's a good sign because the students were engaged, asking questions. And at that point, you know, we start at 6.30. It was now 9.30 our time. And they were there with us. But sports lends itself to that, I think, a little bit more. So I've been encouraged and really energized in some ways by the response I've gotten, the effort being made by the students. I know it can't be easy to look at a small screen versus being in an auditorium. My Wednesday night class is in the Annenberg Auditorium. and it's different. We don't have the connection. There's not the touch points that you have, the dynamic of being in the room and talking to students before class, after class. So it's a lot of cell calls and Zoom calls instead of the in-person meetings. It's not the same, but I hope, and I told them this, that I want their learning experience to still be very, very good. And they were going to get maximum effort from me. That was never going to change. And I would say the one thing about doing a class via Zoom is it allows you to bring in guests that otherwise couldn't join you. Doug Glanville was an example. And in the spring, we had Joe Buck sitting at his home office in St. Louis. By the way, I didn't realize this, but Joe Buck's daughter, Trudy Buck, is a USC student. Who knew? Didn't know that literally until the day that we had Joe in class. So that would be maybe one of the advantages is that it broadens the scope of the people that I can bring into class and share with my students. And I don't feel like there's been a big drop off. I think in some ways it's been easier for students who may have been maybe a little bit reticent about speaking up in front of a class in an auditorium. Now they're just looking at a screen and you might see a list of participants that say, you know, I think we were close to 70 or so last night at one point, but you don't have any idea really because you just see the squares, you know, you see the Hollywood squares look on a Zoom call. And so I think students feel very comfortable speaking up and giving their opinion. And they've been great. They've really made a great effort. And, you know, I salute them for that and really appreciate it because the guests feel their energy. And, you know, when Mike Bone was a guest in the spring, we did that via Zoom. And he also went a lot longer than we had anticipated because he really enjoyed the feedback and the engagement with the students. So we're making the best of it now, not the same, but there hasn't been the drop-off that I feared possibly could happen, and I'm grateful for that. That's good to know. It's obviously something that I never had to deal with as a student. And have you talked to students about the way that they've had to deal with just doing a lot of their classes online and not being engaged in person with you and their fellow students? Yeah, I mean, nobody says it's ideal by any means. I've had a couple of students actually that I've had in other classes of mine that want to take my Wednesday night sports business media class, but they've told me that they want to wait and they want to have the in-person experience for that class. So they're going to wait until we get back to normal. They recognize that it's different. And kind of one of the things I really enjoy about having 
them in person with my guests is I want them to meet the guests. Like in the spring, last spring, Casey Wasserman came. I mean, here's Casey, who's, you know, the head of the committee that brought the Olympics or was bringing it back in 28. And they're staffing that organization now. And, you know, there's potential opportunities for students of mine. And, you know, they get a chance to meet. There was a line of students lined up to meet Casey and Yogi Roth. And, you know, relationships are built from just these encounters. And even though the guests have said, hey, be in touch with me and been very open and nice about doing that. And they're sincere. You miss kind of the in-person thing. And they, they miss that. You know, but life goes on. Everybody's trying to recognize that this is a temporary situation. The hope is that we could be back in person in the spring. Actually, two of my three classes this semester were supposed to be hybrid flex classes, which means you have the option of being in the classroom in person. And the one that wasn't was the bigger Wednesday night class, but two of my three were supposed to be in person. I had agreed to that. They surveyed us as faculty members of our comfort level. So I think they recognize that we'd like to get back to that. I think Annenberg would like to do that. And the hope is President Folt will make the decision in concert with the health officials in LA County and the university. And we're certainly holding out hope that things might change when the spring semester starts in January. I think that would be a positive sign because it would mean that obviously we're getting a better handle on the pandemic and maybe a vaccine will be not too far away. Mm -hmm. But even if you start doing these in-person classes again, I think we're still going to see some of these protocols linger. I mean, are we ever going to go back to the way things used to be when you had large lecture halls full of students? Yeah, it's a really good question, Nara. I wonder the same thing. I would say certainly if we were to go back into the classroom in the spring, it would be with distancing protocols put in place and there would be temperature checks and we would be probably moving into even classes that are you know, maybe 25 or 30, like I might have in one of my spring classes that I teach about the intersection of sports and technology and move to a bigger room so we have a lot more space. But no, I think for a while it's not going to be the same. I don't know how long it would be before we would look like we did before we got to that point in mid-March. I'm curious about what the long-term effects are. I hope there are positive takeaways. I think one thing we've learned is through our life on Zoom is we can be more efficient with our time. I mean, we have monthly faculty meetings. Sometimes some of us don't have classes the days that the meetings are held. Would we now be able to join the meeting via Zoom and save the drive down to campus and that's better for the environment? And would that make sense? Again, not exactly the same as being in the same room, but I do think there are ways to maybe be more efficient and do some things maybe from a distance. So I think going forward, maybe we would have kind of a hybrid life at a university where we would do more things from a distance, but the hope would be that the actual classroom experience would be as in-person as possible. And even if there were distance protocols, at least we would be together in a room. And I think we would all welcome that. I think a lot of us speaking, you know, as a faculty member, a lot of us would welcome the chance to you know, return to that. Definitely. And again, we hope that will be coming soon. But again, we will just have to wait and see the progression of this pandemic. If you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, you can Find us on all of your favorite podcast directories. Download, subscribe, and rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. 
Also, the website is Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcast. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. My guest today is the Associate Professor of Professional Practice at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Jeff Fellenzer. Jeff, let the people know where they can find you. Yeah, love to have your audience tune into my podcast. It's called The Front Row, available on iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts, at Jay Fellenser on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, and I love to connect with anybody out there. I get a chance to see a lot of former students and friends that drop in, and LinkedIn as well. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, and let me know your thoughts on anything that you see me commenting on or you know, I love to get input from, you know, the listeners and viewers. So appreciate the chance to share that. Got so much great stuff here, Jeff, that we've talked about. And there's so much more I want to talk to you about. So if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of call a wrap on this episode, but bring you back for another episode and talk more about some of the other stuff. How's that sound? That sounds great. Now let's do it. All right. Perfect. So for my guest, USC Annenberg School Associate Professor Jeff Fellenzer, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 10 of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And like I end every show, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.